0: Chapter Seventeen of the Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter Seventeen The Battle for Verkinge. But the flaming queven did not drop the anvil on the precious tube elements. Instead she flung it from her to the floor and sank limply into her seat, her golden head on her arms on the workbench. I couldn't do it, she moaned between sobs, for I too know what it is to love. Talk to her, Miles, and I will help you. He gasped with relief. You wouldn't spoil all our days and days of labor, I am sure, he said. What is the matter? I don't understand you. You wouldn't, was her reply, as she shook herself together and resumed work. After a while, one of the soldiers attached to the laboratory brought in word that the Roys and Formians were attacking the walls, and that planes were sailing around in the sky overhead. Cabot gave word to mass his men to defend the laboratory at all costs, and went on working. One by one, the tubes were completed and tested. From time to time, Quiven would step into the yard, glance at the sky, and then, report back to Miles. The Formian planes were scouting low, but were not dropping bombs. Judd had apparently been right in one thing, that the beasts would not risk injuring the expected prizes of war, namely Arky, Lou, and Cuevan. From time to time, runners brought word of the fighting at the outer wall of the city, It would have been an easy matter for the Ant-Men to bomb the gates, and thus let in their Roy allies, but evidently they were playing safe even there. At last, however, word came that traitors, presumably friends of Tippy, had opened one of the gates, and that the enemy was now within the city. Still Miles worked steadily on. Suddenly, Queven returned from one of her scouting trips in the yard with a cry. One of the air wagons has seen me and is coming down. At that, the radio man permitted himself to leave his bench for a few moments and go to the door. True, the plane was hovering down, eagerly awaited by a score or so of Cabot's Fair King soldiers armed with swords, spears, and bows. As the Formians came within bowshot, They were met with a shower of arrows, most of which, however, glanced harmlessly off the metallic bottom of the fuselage. The ant-men at once retaliated with a shower of bullets. 2 Verkings dropped to the ground, and the others frantically rushed to cover within the buildings, forcing back Miles and his two companions, as the fugitives crowded through the door. "'Where is your magic slingshot?' one of them taunted him as they swept by the Earthman shook himself and passed the back of one hand across his tired brow then hurried to his living room seizing his rifle he cautiously approached one of the slit windows which overlooked the yard and peeked out the plane was on the ground four ants were disembarking here at last was a chance to secure transportation miles opened fire the formians were taken completely by surprise oh how it did cabot's heart good to see those ancient enemies drop and squirm as he pumped lead into them they made no attempt to return his fire but scuttled toward their beached plain only one of them reached it but one was enough to deprive the earthman of his booty up shot the craft Followed by a parting bullet from Miles. Then he proceeded to the yard once more. His furry soldiers, brave now that all danger was over, were already there before him, putting an end to the three wounded ant men with swords and spears. A strong and pungent odor filled the air. Miles sniffed. It was alcohol in large quantities. The plane could not last long for he had punctured its fuel tank each of the dead enemies had been fully armed so that although miles failed in his plan to secure the airship the encounter had at least netted him three rifles and three bandoliers of cartridges these he bestowed on doggo guaven and the captain of his guards saying you three with four or five others had better go at once to judd's compound BEFORE THE FIGHTING REACHES HERE. FOR NOW THAT THE Formians HAVE LOCATED QUEVEN, THEY ARE SURE TO ATTACK AGAIN, SOONER OR LATER. BUT THE GOLDEN-FURRED PRINCESS REMONSTRATED WITH HIM, LET US STAY TOGETHER, FIGHT TOGETHER, AND IF NEED BE, DIE TOGETHER. FOR THE BUILDER'S SAKE, RUN ALONG, HE REPLIED TESTILY. WE ARE WASTING VALUABLE TIME. I WILL JOIN YOU, IF THE FIGHTING GETS TOO THICK HEREABOUTS. BUT HOW CAN YOU? BY THE BACK WAY, WHICH YOU TAUGHT ME. BUT YOU NEED THE HELP OF DOGGO AND MYSELF. NO LONGER, FOR THE SET IS COMPLETE. ALL THAT REMAINS TO BE DONE IS TO TUNE IN AND EITHER GET Cupia ON THE AIR OR NOT. NOW, AS YOU ARE MY TRUE FRIENDS, PLEASE RUN ALONG. So, with a shrug and a pout, she left him. And with her went Doggo, and the captain, and five of the guard. Much relieved, the radio man returned to his workbench, although the move truly was wise for the safety of Cuevan. The real motive which actuated Miles was a desire to have her absent when and if he should talk to his Lilla. He leaned his rifle against the bench, hung the bandolier handily nearby, and set to work. A few more connections, and his hookup was complete. He surveyed the assembled set with a great deal of satisfaction, for although it really was a means to an end, yet it was a considerable end in itself after all, as any radio fan can appreciate. Once more, Miles Standish Cabot, electrical engineer, had demonstrated his premiership on two worlds he had made a complete radio set out of basic natural elements without the assistance of a single previously fabricated tool or material it was an unbelievable feat yet it had been completed successfully with trembling hands he adjusted the controls and listened gradually he tuned in a station it seemed a nearby station a voice was saying we could not report before o master for we have only just repaired the set which this cabot wrecked the minorian lied when he told you that he had affairs well in hand for even at that moment he was a fugitive he is now with the furry cupians who live to the north of new formia TODAY OUR FORCES ARE ATTACKING THEIR CITY. IT IS ONLY A MATTER OF A FEW PARTHS BEFORE HE WILL BE IN OUR HANDS. I HAVE SPOKEN, AND SHALL NOW STAND BY TO RECEIVE. THIS WAS THE SUPREME TEST. COULD MILES Cabot HEAR THE REPLY? ADJUSTING HIS SET TO THE EXTREME LIMIT OF ITS SENSITIVITY, HE WAITED, HIS HANDS ON THE WAVELENGTH DIALS. Faintly, but distinctly, came the answer in the well-known voice of Yuri the Usurper. "'You have done well. Now I will hand the antennaphones to the Princess Lilla, and I wish you to repeat to her what you have just told me, so that she may hear it with her own antennae and believe.' A pause. And then Cabot heard the Ant-Man, stationed at the shack on the mountains near Uriana, Recount the tale of Doggo's abortive revolution and flight, of cabots wrecking the radio set and disappearing, of the Formian alliance with Ott the Terrible, of the fall of Sir, and of the attack on Verkingi, ending with the words which he had already caught. As he listened to this narration, the Earthman was rapidly making up his mind what to do and as soon as the ant-man signed off, Cabot cut in with, Lilla, dearest, do not show any sign of surprise, but listen intently, as though the Formian were still speaking. This is your own miles I am sending from a station which I have only just completed after many sancts of intensive work. It is true that the Formians are now attacking our city, but they cannot win. Sir fell, because we were taken by surprise, but we were warned in time to defend Verkingi. Already I myself have driven off one plane and killed three Formians. As yet I have been unable to secure an airship, or I should have flown back to you. Please get in touch with Torin, or some other of my friends, and persuade them to fly across the boiling seas, and bring me back. Yuri has made it twice, and what man has done, that man can do. Now I am about to finish. When I sign off, please request Yuri for permission to talk to the Formian at Uriana, to ask him some questions. Then tell me as much as you can of yourself, our baby, and the situation in Kupia. Before Yuri shuts you off, I have spoken, dearest. And Miles stood by to receive. With what a thrill did he hear his own Lilla's voice answer Oh, Formian, I have Prince Yuri's permission to speak to you. You may answer what I ask you and reply to what I tell you, but he himself will receive lest I hear something which I ought not. This leads me to believe that affairs are not so bad with Cabot as you report. She is doing fine, Miles remarked to himself admiringly. So far, Yuri will not suspect that she is talking to me. Lilla's voice continued. You and the other Formians may be interested to know that Prince Yuri is in complete control here. Baby Q and I are well, and are being respectfully treated by Prince Yuri as his guests in the palace at Kuana. He has promised me that if I will marry him, Q can have the succession after his death, and this I might have accepted for the baby's sake. But now that I know that you are still alive, this cannot be. She has made a slip. Cabot moaned. Evidently she realized it herself, for her voice hurried on. You see the whistling bees? Then Yuri's voice cut in abruptly. With congratulations, Cabot. I don't see how you did it. "'Your ex-wife would have gotten across a lot more information to you "'if she hadn't inadvertently let me know to whom she was talking, "'by her careless use of the word you. "'I don't know what you said to her, "'but I shall be on my guard. "'No more radio for the Princess Lilla "'until my henchmen in New Formia report your death, "'which I hope will be soon. "'Good-bye, you cursed spot of sunshine.' Yuri, king of Cupia, signing off for the night. So that was that. Miles switched off the set and sat submerged in thought. Lilla and his baby were safe. He doubted not that she would sooner or later find means to send him a plane. He had given Yuri cause to doubt the glorious story told by the Formian radio operator. The new set had fulfilled its mission. But how had Yuri succeeded in climbing into power again in Cupia, nine-tenths of the inhabitants of which were loyal to Princess Lilla and the baby king? Then Miles remembered her closing words, The Whistling Bees. It was as little Jacqueline Farley had prophesied on her father's New England farm during Cabot's brief revisit to the earth. Cabot had stated, There can be no peace on any continent— which is inhabited by more than one race of intelligent beings, whereat little Jacqueline had pointed out that the whistling bees were intelligent beings. Doubtless Yuri had stirred up trouble between the bees and the Cupian allies, and had ridden to the throne on the crest of this trouble. Poor Theoris, king of the bees, had undoubtedly been deposed, for he was too loyal to Miles to stand for this. The earthman's reverie was rudely interrupted at this point by one of his soldiers, who rushed into the laboratory shouting, Sir, there is fighting in your very yard. Cabot slipped the bandolier over his shoulders, adjusted the straps, picked up his rifle, and hurried to the door. In the yard his guards were struggling in hand-to-hand combat, with a superior force of roys. He could tell them apart— not only by the contrast between the fine features of his own men and ape-like faces of the intruders but more easily by the contrast between the leather tunics of the kings and the nakedness of the roys so standing calmly in the doorway miles began picking off the enemy one by one with his rifle it was too easy almost like trap-shooting but it didn't last long for the roys soon learned what was up and breaking away from their opponents, crowded out through the gate, followed by a shower of missiles and maledictions. Cabot's kings were for following, but their master peremptorily called them back, and directed them to barricade the laboratory. It was well that he did so, for presently the heads of the enemy began to appear above the top of the fence. Evidently, they had built a platform in the street, soon arrows and pebbles began to fly at the windows of the house the ver kings replied with a volley but cabot cautioned them to conserve their ammunition and watch him pick off with his rifle one by one the heads which showed themselves above the paling this soon ceased to be interesting so giving the rifle and bandolier to one of the more intelligent of his men and instructing them to hold the laboratory at all costs the earthman set out, sword in hand, by a back way to rejoin Doggo and Quiven. The alleys which he threaded were deserted. He reached the rear of Judd's compound without a vent, and passed in to one of the enclosures through a small and well-concealed gate in the face of the wall. Quiven had pointed this route out to him before, but never had he traversed it farther than this point. He looked cautiously around him. Then he rubbed his eyes and looked again. He could hardly believe his senses. There stood a Formian airplane in apparently perfect condition. Approaching it gingerly with drawn sword, he circled it carefully to make sure that it contained no enemies. But it was deserted. A hasty inspection disclosed that everything was in working order, except that the fuel tank was empty. Probably then. This was the plane at which he had fired. But no, for this plane did not even smell of alcohol. The tank had evidently been dry for some time, and there was no sign of any bullet hole in it. Gradually the fact dawned on him that this was Doggo's plane, which Judd had concealed from them for so long. He must reach Doggo and tell him. At the farther side of the enclosure, from the side at which he had entered, there was a door. Miles raced toward it, and flung it open. Beyond it there was a second enclosure, similar to the first. Miles raced across this one as well, and flung open another door, whereupon out poured a crowd of roys, upsetting him, and throwing him, sprawling upon the ground." BUT THEY WERE AS SURPRISED AS HE WAS AT THE ENCOUNTER, AND THIS FACT ENABLED HIM TO REGAIN HIS SWORD AND SCRAMBLE TO HIS FEET, BEFORE THEY WERE UPON HIM AGAIN, WITH PARRY AND THRUST. GOOD swordsman AS HE WAS, THEY HAD SOON FORCED HIM, HIS BACK AGAINST THE WALL, TO DEFEND HIS LIFE WITH HIS TRUSTY WOODEN BLADE. TIME AND AGAIN, ONE OF THEIR POINTS WOULD REACH HIS TUNIC, BUT HE KEPT HIS NECK WELL GUARDED and so was able to stand them off when he had drawn his breath and got his bearings and his defense had become slightly a matter of routine he recognized the leader of the enemy as none other than the traitor tippy his first thought was to run tippy through for his treachery but then he reflected that quite likely Quiven really loved tippy after all it would be a shame to kill this boy merely because his unrequited love had caused him to lose his head. From then on, Miles had no time to reflect on anything, for he was engaged in the difficult task of trying to defend himself without hurting Tippy. The young Verking had recognized the Earthman and was hurling vituperations at him. But Miles saved his breath for his sword play. Even so he gradually tired. His sword hand no longer instantly responded to every command of his agile brain, and even his brain itself became less agile. It was only a matter of time when he would be certain to make a misplay, and go down before his opponents, yet still he struggled on. And then, suddenly, a new complication entered the game, for he was seized from behind the arms, and was lifted, struggling and kicking, off the ground. End of chapter 17. Recording by John Brandon.